0: My best friend has rosy hair.
1: My best friend walks with a tail in the air. My best friend makes me feel full as a moon.
2: Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner, your dog's best friend and your kitty cat's best friend. Wishing a happy weekend to listeners on Peconic Public Broadcasting in the Hamptons, on Robin Hood Radio in Connecticut and the Berkshires, and to podcast listeners everywhere. Please listen to all my new live call-in pet radio shows on the Radio Pet Lady Network, co-hosted by top pet experts at radiopetlady.com. Dog Talk is a production of 8 Paws LLC, which is solely responsible for its content and is brought to you with the generous support of Platinum Performance Supplements, Woruva we'll Pet Foods, Precious Cat Litter, Nordic Naturals Omega-3 Fish Oils, and the Animal Specialty Center, which is just north of New York City and Westchester County, and is a comprehensive veterinary facility offering board-certified specialists in oncology, cardiology, dermatology, neurology, surgery, internal medicine, and dentistry. The Animal Specialty Center helps people and their own vets diagnose and treat challenging medical conditions with access to innovative diagnostic tools and state-of-the-art equipment. The Animal Specialty Center gives families the option to utilize the latest medical choices for their four-legged family members. I have a wonderful show planned today. I actually have one of the doctors from the Animal Specialty Center who's going to be talking to us about skin problems, the top dermatologist there. So that'll be really interesting, Dr. Jean Budgen. Then I'll have Dr. Carlos Siracusa from the University of Pennsylvania, who's gonna talk about what psych medications there are for a dog with severe separation anxiety. Those of you who think you have severe separation anxiety with your dogs, you ain't heard nothing yet. So stay tuned for that advice. And then the wonderful author, John Bradshaw from England, will be talking about his new book, Cat Sense, How the New Feline Science Can Make You a Better Friend to Your Pet. So I'm going to jump right in and say hi to Dr. Jean Budgen. It's great to have you here, Dr. Jean. I'm excited to be here. Well, there's nothing as important to people as itching and scratching. I guess you're probably the most popular vet at the Animal Specialty Center because isn't itching, skin problems, hot spots, the number one reason that people go to their primary vet, their everyday vet?
3: That is absolutely correct. So uh, it's very busy service, especially this time of year.
2: Yes, um, but in fact, I guess what's what's interesting to me, and I'm sure frustrating for you, is how many people have this completely confused idea that somehow their dog or cat is itching or scratching because of their food. When I I don't know how many years I've been going blue in the face saying to people, not even five percent of the time are skin problems caused by food. So people are. What are they getting from their own primary vet? A steroid shot, prednisone, cortisone, which is just covers up a symptom. Do, do people wait until their pet is just a, a raw mass of skin problems before they realize they need a dermatologist?
3: I think it depends a little bit um, on you know when different patients present to our dermatology and allergy service. I find that many veterinarians in primary care will refer very early which is very advantageous yes if we meet them you know early in the onset of their skin or ear disease our success rates are much better in terms of managing them long term and then of course there are a few that you know I meet later in life and while I'm still very grateful to help um, at that point it, it certainly presents more challenges when these chronic uh conditions have set in in the ears and the skin
2: that's right because i forgot ear scratching that redness that discharge i can't tell you how many people have claimed over the years even one dog breeder of uh of great mountain pyrenees whatever that nice black white and and brown breed is they all kind of look similar said oh yes my dog's allergic to chicken that's what did it but really I mean, maybe one in a million dogs is actually allergic to chicken. I mean, I I think that the the realization that so many humans have allergies, so many of us go to dermatologists, well, even allergists, because for you as a dermatologist, you're also an allergist, whereas in human medicine, a dermatologist doesn't actually handle allergies, but you actually wear two hats in a sense, right? Uh,
3: Exactly, And, and probably because the most common manifestation of allergic skin disease in dogs and cats is just as you said itchy skin disease recurrent ear inflammation and um, infections whereas in humans it's a little bit different so yeah our
2: ears don't get red and itchy and stinky thank god that would be really gross yeah although it is really gross with the dogs and to some extent the cats i know that feline dermatology is one of your specialties and a thing you love which is really great because there's so few doctors that really embrace the feline challenges, all the different feline challenges, but what are some of the things that kitty cats exhibit that aren't like your traditional golden retriever hotspot, which winds up being treated with cortisone and antibiotics. And often people aren't really addressing either underlying flea allergy or perhaps even environmental allergies. What do the kitty cats bring to you that are their own set of issues?
3: Well, cats have very different manifestations in their skin of allergic skin disease. They often will have a form of what's called the eosinophilic granuloma complex, which can range from lesions within their oral or their mouth um, area. Their lips can be affected. Uh, They can also very commonly get flea allergy dermatitis. That's the the number one cause, as it is in dogs of itchy skin disease that can present with lesions or kind of like a racing stripe or a mohawk, we call it, along the backside, or even a condition called miliary dermatitis, which are small bumps or papules in the skin,
2: are very common presentations in in cats, but fairly unusual in dogs. Do you find that primary vets are a little quicker to send a cat to you or not really because fewer people unfortunately bring their cats to the vet just cuz of carrier trauma and going to the vet trauma uh, are they the ones that that the that the primary vets are a little less quick to use cortisone and antibiotics with or is that kind of the go-to symptomatic remedy with without someone I saying I think it's still you, you need to know what a
3: go-to yeah. symptomatic yeah. remedy in, yeah. in kitties unfortunately and uh, you know as More and more people are doing research on their own, which we have to be careful with the internet, of course, but they're learning about specialty medicine often through the internet or different manifestations of allergies in cats and dogs. And I I see a lot of people that come in on their own that aren't referred. Really? some of my best clients, you know, because they're very proactive and they're very interested in doing what's best for their pets. And, and and those
2: people I tend to see sometimes sooner than later in the stage of disease as well. Isn't that interesting? So they, they kind of leapfrog the waste, if you will, time, money, and irritation on the part of the pet for months or even sometimes years at their primary vet who just keeps treating the symptom, treating the symptom, and they realize, well, if humans go to a dermatologist for a skin problem or humans go to an allergist for allergic issues that show up in the skin in a pet that's where I should be going. Like, don't stop, you know, don't pass, no, don't collect $200. I, I think that the other thing for people to realize who have pet insurance is not only are these problems covered if they're not a existing condition, which is why get it early before you see these things, mm-hmm. but I think people also have... a, a I'm guessing quite a wrong-headed idea that somehow going to a specialist, going to some specialty center full of specialists like the animal specialty center is going to cost them more money. And I think that that's well, I mean, leaving aside the fact that they'll probably get relief for their pet sooner because you have a specialist. Mm-hmm. Isn't that quite incorrect?
3: Well, specialty care is, is definitely more expensive than care at the general or the primary veterinary level. However, you raise a very good point that if we can kind of cut to the chase and fine-tune the diagnostic and treatment plan, we get answers, we get relief sooner versus later. So over the course of the disease, it may actually be more cost-effective in the
2: end. And, of course, you you aren't living with that dog that's scratching and scratching. How many people have I seen whose dogs can't walk down the street without stopping to itch and scratch, and my heart goes out to them? Imagine being that itchy
3: mind
2: you oh yeah. my god it would be like wanting to rip your hair out or something which is what they often do and mm-hmm. people that have had you know your golden retriever or your Gordon setter or your iris setter I've just seen some of those breeds where huge pieces you know chunks of their hair are missing they think that that's quote-unquote normal when the dog is suffering mightily It in, in dogs that you get at whatever stage is skin testing, just like in humans for allergy, is that your gold standard? Because I think that, I've said this many times on the show, but I'd rather have a dermatologist tell people yeah. that that, that's, that a blood test is not considered truly diagnostic. I know that there are people who, their primary vet, will draw blood and send off a three or $400 lab test, and my understanding is that that's not really an appropriate way to find out what your animal's allergic to.
3: Well... It it varies a little bit with the laboratory that the blood test is sent to, and certainly blood panels for airborne allergies do tend to have more false positive or false negative reactions. So I do not consider them as reliable as intradermal skin testing, uh, you know, which is similar to prick testing in people. I also want to mention, just because this misconception still is sometimes perpetuated, that any type of blood allergy panel for food allergies is
2: completely unreliable and that's
3: fairly well accepted.
2: Accepted within the medical community. And yet I'd like to say, Dr. Jean, there are doctors all over this country still prescribing it, still costing people that time and money and giving them completely bogus information. So then the person's rushing out to get novel protein, antigen free wildly rare foods kangaroo only for the rest of their life when really my friends you gotta like take care of the flea situation and find out is your dog really allergic to trees and grass i must say my biggest wake-up call about the value of a dermatologist was when i was at camp some camp where people went with their dogs and some woman had a nice little i think it was like an irish terrier and she said oh yes he's allergic to grass and i i thought I didn't want to be rude. I said, you must be out of your mind. How could a dog be alive and be allergic to grass? How could they ever have survived? And then it's like, oh, yeah, selective breeding on our part. There's tons of dogs allergic to grass, right? I mean, I'm allergic to grass, it turns out. Right? Yes, absolutely. But then if you do that skin prick test on a dog, by the way, do you do it on the belly? Is that the place that you can get the skin? No, on the side of the chest. Typically, and okay. it's just you know we shave a
3: patch of fur. We're very you know we shave a very clean patch. Try to make it as cosmetic as possible, and it's under very light sedation. I've had a few breeds that I haven't had to sedate a few new fees recently. Really, you know, they they they're kind of sedate from the get-go. <laughs> I like um, that. But, but other dogs you do have to sedate,
2: they wouldn't sit still for the... for the, for no, the the. No, most are, you know, it's 60 injections
3: uh, through a very wow. tiny needle in the skin. Wow. And they're still responsive. You know, they're not under anesthesia, of course, but they're just lightly sedated. And I feel like that's the most humane thing, to be that's honest. That's nice. If there's, you know, a contraindication to sedation, we reconsider. We might even consider a blood allergy panel, but uh, just a very short sedation and, you know, knock on wood. Um, I really haven't had any complications uh, thus far. We're I didn't realize very
2: careful and um, that. I didn't realize it was 60 individual small injections. Right. With yeah. a human, they have that board that has like it looks like a tortured board of like nails sticking uh-huh. out of it. I'm exaggerating, and they put the allergen in in the sequence that the aller- human allergist is used to doing, it, and they squeeze it on your skin, press it in. I guess that that would be, obviously wouldn't really work with the contour of a dog's body.
3: Well, it's actually, that prick testing has been researched um, in cats. And we're talking, you know, very kind of cutting edge information presented at our last North American Veterinary Dermatology Forum. But we have a long way to Um just because when you test the skin differently, you have to look at the concentration of the allergens and a whole number of different factors. That could be, you know, on the horizon, which is pretty exciting.
2: But in fact, these little little injections are like what you might say, like a little insulin-type needle, just tiny little injections. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when you see a reaction on the skin on that Labrador retriever, you know then exactly what the dog's allergic to, and if it's probably environmental, you would then mix up, just like with a human allergist, injections that the dog would come and get frequently in order to desensitize their immune system to that, or the histamine reaction to that allergen?
3: Essentially, yes. Uh, we look at, you know, we test a whole panel of house dust mites, which is actually the most common cause of airborne allergies in dogs and cats.
2: Wow.
3: Storage mites, uh, different things in the environment, including feathers and wool and cat dander, a whole host of pollens, molds, yeast, and then we have a positive and negative control. We sometimes will pair that skin test to a blood allergy panel just as an additional screening uh, to to look for additional reactions within the blood. But really, just as you said, the reactions in the skin via the skin test are the most valuable and the most reliable. So we look at those reactions... We have a conversation with the caretaker, are these significant reactions? Because you can have false positive reactions on skin tests as well. Really? Does your, is there a role in the home? Do you have a cat in your home? Are there feathers? We look at those, we um, discuss the reactions, and then we create an allergy vaccine.
2: That can be given under the skin we teach owners how to do that oh
3: my
1: or, gosh so you can
2: do it yourself you don't have to uh, make the course. trip I never knew that I thought you had and to even be more exciting wow is we're now doing uh, what's called sublingual immunotherapy wow. where we
3: give mouth drops twice a day
2: wow mm-hmm. well that is a game that for me is a total uh light bulb because I thought that someone doing the skin testing had to already be prepared to make multiple trips back to the dermatologist over weeks or months or years. But in fact, you create that serum that the that the owner then gives themselves. Correct. Wow. I, to me, I, I, I honestly didn't know that. And I had a golden use to get these gross, gummy, disgusting hot spots, which were obviously allergies to something. And it was 20 years ago or more and dermat, you know, pet dermatology, vet dermatology, just wasn't that sophisticated, or maybe I wasn't that sophisticated. I didn't have access to some place like the animal specialty center. So really, it's to diagnose it and then to come up with a therapy, and then the person has control of that problem, if you will, of that situation themselves, and can be in touch with you by phone, email, or or revisiting to see how things are working, right? change it and up. And we stay needed. in
3: very, very close contact throughout this whole process. You know, some patients, very few patients actually, uh, resist receiving injections. So we troubleshoot that. We also look at what can be done in the environment, uh, in terms of reducing exposure to some of these things, you know, I always kind of joke around with our clients about, well, you can't, you know, put your pet in a bubble. And sometimes that's, that's sort of what we feel like we need to do for allergen avoidance. But there are some simple things that clients can do to reduce exposure. And the idea is avoid exposure and just as you mentioned, teach the immune system tolerance, you know, versus yes. masking. And symptomatic relief is really important. And using steroids very responsibly and carefully and educating people about side effects and using minimal doses is sometimes indicated. But there's a lot that goes into client education any time we prescribe a steroid, and and hopefully not long-term either. Our allergy vaccines, in most cases, I'd say 70% or more of our patients. Result in less dependence on these medications that can have side effects over time fewer infections Better quality of life. Those are kind of all the goals of the allergy are the immunotherapy program
2: It's a lifesaver for people because labs being the most popular breed and golden's being close behind those are two breeds I'm sure you see a lot of but if you don't I mean it's certainly what most of us see around us and all these dogs itching and scratching There is relief, It just we have to understand that there is something setting off that reaction in the dog and there's a way to cool it down, turn it off, turn down the volume, however you wanna put it. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm delighted and amazed to find out that it's something that people can then do at home. Well, everyone knows how to find the Animal Specialty Center and Dr. Jean Budgen, it's just a great option if you have an animal with any of these issues. And I will reiterate that if you don't have pet insurance yet and you don't have a problem yet, get pet insurance so that if and when, because sometimes this doesn't happen until the animal's older, you start this itching and scratching, it's covered. The cost of this is covered and then you get this sort of gold standard of diagnosis and treatment and it's not as painful to the pocketbook. Dr. budgen thank you so much for this. I'm, I'm hoping to have you come back another time. We need to talk more about I would kitty love cats. To. I think it's great. It's so important for people to know there is help out there, and people and their animals do not have to be itching and scratching like like a cage full of monkeys. I I don't suppose you treat monkeys. But that's I just as well, because I don't think many of the listeners are, are monkey owners. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you very much. Really again. enjoyed Take talking care. to you. Take care. We'll be right back after this break with Dr. Carlos Siracusa. Support for Dog Talk comes from Waruva, a family owned company that makes their foods in a human food factory because they believe pets deserve to eat as well as their people do. All the flavors of Waruva, Cats in the Kitchen, and their more economical BFF, Best Feline Friend brands, are made to appeal to finicky little dogs and choosy cats, especially those you're trying to transition away from dry foods. This show is also supported by Platinum Performance Canine Wellness Formula, a comprehensive nutritional supplement for dogs that provides a special blend of more than 55 nutrients to improve a dog's overall health at a cellular level. And there are Platinum Performance supplements for people, cats, and horses, too. I am back with Dr. Carlos Siracusa. Some of you remember him as the official veterinary behaviorist of Dog Talk and Kitties Too a wonderful man with his beautiful kitty Marco and his fabulous Italian accent. And he's here to help me with a problem I had on one of my programs on the Radio Pet Lady Network about severe separation anxiety and what the sort of things he can offer to owners and their primary vets if you have a dog like that. Dr. Syracuse, welcome back to the show. We haven't seen you in long enough. It's great to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me again. Greetings for me and Marco.
2: Marco, your beautiful kitty who lost his sight, but he's still so gorgeous. And is he getting used to being blind? He's gotten used to the house?
1: Yes, yes. Now he has a good life. He feels comfortable. He seems comfortable in his environment. So he seems to do very well.
2: Nice to know. Nice for people to know that when your dogs or cats lose their hearing or lose their sight, life doesn't end. They just adapt. They probably adjust better than we do. This this young lady, Dr. Carlo, uh, wrote in and then was talking to me on one of the shows on Radio Pet Lady Network, actually on, on Cat Chat and Dog Talk, and I had a veterinarian on who did not claim to be a veterinary Behaviors like yourself and recommended highly that she see one. But this dog, uh, which was named Gracie, was a small German Shepherd mix of 35 pounds. She'd had the dog for five years, and from the minute that she adopted it, she discovered the dog could not be left alone in the house to the point that in the beginning the dog went through a plate glass window. Now, I had heard these stories, but I, I never knew they were actually literally true and also had gone through a screen door of some kind so she could never leave the dog at home. And she had tried crating and desensitization and an adaptal diffuser. and uh, all ki- She'd had trainers. She'd done all the things that one might think of including anti-anxiety medication. But it seemed to me, and to the veterinarian who was helping me with Gracie's case, that she really needed to see a veterinary behaviorist like yourself, who, just as we do with humans who have severe psychological, let's say even chemicals that are gone wrong in their brain problems, we see a medical doctor who is very practiced in the more sophisticated psychotropic, I guess that's the right word, drugs, So at the University of Pennsylvania, you are a referral center for other vets. Do you get much separation anxiety issues, severe ones?
1: We see less and less separation anxiety uh, as far as number of cases, uh, right? Because uh, many of our referring vets, they are able to treat separation anxiety. And we have to think that the only psychotropic drugs that are FDA approved for using dogs, they are actually for separation anxiety. So there are tools that can have the primary care veterinarian. When we see cases now, they are pretty severe. And these are the cases that you were referring to, like cases that do not respond well to a more traditional therapy or just using one of the, classic or, or FDA-approved uh, 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 drugs for treatment of subversion anxiety. These cases, I have to say, they are very severe and sometimes very difficult to uh, uh, to, to control. Um, what happens is that uh, while with other problems, uh, let's consider uh, fear-related aggression, for example, we can instruct uh, the owner to do something when... Uh, uh, there is the actual stressful dangerous or threatening situation. This is not possible with with subvers anxiety that's right, that 's right because the dangerous yeah the
2: dangerous situation is you 're just trying to leave your house yeah. and it 's well, not possible childbirth. i mean yeah. that 's pretty severe. So, I mean, so, let me just ask uh, you something. The the traditional, if that's the right word, the so-called anti-anxiety medication that your family veterinarian might use is generally Prozac. Is that right? That's what I've only ever heard mentioned is Prozac.
1: Uh, there are two uh, two drugs approved. Uh, they are both uh, serotoninergic drugs, that is drugs that, that works on uh, the Concentration of serotonin in the brain, which okay. is a neurotransmitter, that, that it's related um, to uh, anxiety and fear and aggression, depression okay. in humans, not in okay. dogs. Right. So there are two drugs that are approved. One is the equivalent of Prozac, okay. which uh, the 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 veterinary brand is called Reconcile.
2: Reconcile. Um, okay. And the other
1: one is a similar drug. Though it's a little bit different because it works on uh, on uh, on more neurotransmitters, not just serotonin, which is called clomical, and is the generic for uh, there is a brand name for the generic uh, clomipramine. So there are the two drugs, right. of-
2: And those have been around for quite some time because I remember writing about those in the Dog Bible, and that book is kind of getting old. So that's sort of not there. Not been much more that's come down the road for your average vet to use, right?
1: Yeah, this is a, a, unfortunately a limited choice. Uh, and then when we have to uh, uh, make drug combination, because we rely a lot on drugs in case of suppression anxiety, because as we were saying, the owner is not there to take an action. Uh, when we have to make drug combination, we have to use drugs uh, uh, which are not uh, uh, labeled for use in suppression right. anxiety. though right. They are... Commonly used, and we also have studies that for some of these drugs that 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 show uh, uh, their effectiveness in cases of subversion anxiety there is no um, i'll say there's no standard combination that works for all dogs in all situations so the the, the problem is try to find uh, the right combination of right. the right dose. Of the right drugs.
2: Yes. So uh,
1: it's a, what we usually do is 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 trying different combination, based also a little bit on the type of response uh, uh, that the dog is showing, and considering also if there is some comorbidity with other problems. This means if the dog has other behavior problems, not just separation anxiety. So depending on this, we pick some drugs and, and we make the, the drug combination which might or might not work and we should try something different. One important concept, general concept about this combination is that what we tend to use are uh, two types of drugs. One like the Reconcile and the clomicam that we have mentioned which is a long-term drug. So it's a drug that is to be given on a daily basis for a long-term because it takes a while, from six to eight weeks, for this drug to reach its uh, anti-anxiety effect. Yes. Now, Uh, let me just interrupt the people I know that have been on
2: Prozac, now that I think about it, um, that I've only known humans who took it for depression, which is obviously... Maybe it's a cousin to separation anxiety. I don't know. But now that I think of it, there it's sort of similar to what you're describing. They aren't the yes. doctor is yes, not sure is. what dose, and then the person takes it and says a day later, a week later, two weeks later, I don't feel any better. But I remember now that it is in fact takes a long time of patience to even know if it might work.
1: Yes, because the the what happens is that the drug will increase pretty fast the concentration of the neurotransmitter, of the serotonin. However, our neurons at that point are not still functional, and, the, and the, the, this type of neuron, like the serotonin neurons. And, and it, it takes uh, four, six weeks for the drug to reestablish the, the function of this neuron. So this is why it takes so long. But the problem is that usually in case of severe seducional anxiety, four, six weeks is a long time. Yes, like it people is. Many people have been already sued, or they have received uh, like letter from the neighbors, yes. please try to fix this problem because we cannot really uh, uh, like uh, uh, face this problem longer. Or the dog is injured himself trying to uh, escape from yes. the crate. So, in fact, uh, in we- this case,
2: just to give an example. They did everything they could to make the crate lovely. They fed her dinner in it. They put treats in it. They played in it. it. Had lovely bedding, the music. And then when they would leave, the dog got to the point where her her paws were bloodied, and she wore off her entire bottom teeth. They're gone from trying to chew her yeah. way out. So I mean, I guess that's yeah.
1: sort of what you're talking about. Yes, yes. And, and so what we need is um, a drug, uh, and this is what we use in the combination, is a second drug that would have a faster effect, something that oh, I see. To, to change the situation quickly. And there are uh, 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 like two or three different uh, uh, like families that we can try. So we make a combination of this. So we use the short-acting drug as a bridge, to reach right. the, the, the full effect of the long-term, the standing drug, uh, uh, which would be one of the serotonin drugs. So the, the, what the, is it
2: that's happening in the dog's brain since you have worked so much in research? You worked with dog appeasing pheromone before they ever called it DAP or Adaptil. I mean, you, you did your thesis in France on it, I, which I found so interesting. Um, what is it that happens inside the dog's brain? Is it Adrenaline. What is the thing that gets released that makes the dog completely ir- irrational, if you will, panic-stricken to the point that they're out of their minds? What is it that... Ha- it, there must be some chemical? What happens?
1: Yes. Uh, the, it's a combination of factors. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, it's an anxiety and stress response, uh, pretty similar to what happened in other situations of, of stress and anxiety, Again, the difference is that we are not there to take an action. What we know uh, is that uh, there is the activation of the stress response, which uh, uh, in, uh, imply the activation of uh, at least two different hormones, uh, uh, which are neurotransmitters, which is the cortisol, which is the classical stress hormone, and what you have mentioned, adrenaline, like epinephrine. So um, uh, adrenaline or adrenaline are typical of this feeling that we experience when we got scared, like yes. immediately we feel that our heart rate increase, yes. our pupils delayed, we are ready to take an action. So this usually corresponds with the moment of panics. Uh, however, uh, even, even let's think, for example, to when when we are preparing to leave, or even when we are home, but just we approach the door, our dogs start to feel stressed. Even if it's not as bad as when we leave, in that case, there is an activation of the uh, uh, noradrenergic response, but there is also a high level of cortisol, which which uh, uh, makes this dog. Is always experiencing uh, uh, a level of stress. Like cortisol might stay raised for a long time after the stressor is gone. What does this mean? This means that even when we are home and, and our dog looks calmer, I see, he's still stressed. It's like the same time when he, uh, same thing when we have a bad day and we come back home. It's not that we completely erase right everything. Right, we're still bring it health. home, we
2: bring the yeah. baggage home with us. Is there, I yeah. mean, of course there's no magic pill for anything really, and there's certainly not a magic pill for everything, but is there some sort of a medication that can be given that, and I'm asking this out of total ignorance, that blocks cortisol or blocks adrenaline?
1: Uh no. Uh, it's not it's not uh, blocking the, the the stress response. Also because the stress response is an natural response, and in some cases might be effective. Things, for example, if we block the stress response, and then the dog. Uh, As to confront a real threat, like something that is really putting his life in in danger, it's normal that he has to be able to activate his stress response and save himself. So what we want is trying to minimize the anxiety that the dog dog experiences. So uh, uh, it would be less likely to activate the stress response, or the stress response would be activated to a less degree when there is no real threat when 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 it's straight it's just perceived like the owner living so uh the drugs that we use they do not act directly on the mediators of the stress response, but they act on those uh, hormones and neurotransmitters that are responsible for the high level of anxiety that the dog experiences so in 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 the in the case of the drugs that we have mentioned, it can be Serotonin, it can be noradrenaline. For example, clomicam also works on noradrenaline, uh, or in other cases, it can be an, uh, what is called an inhibitory neurotransmitters, which is GABA, gamma aminobutyric acid, uh, which uh, uh, this this neurotransmitter promote calmer behavior. Uh, to uh, uh, say it's like uh, 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 Clearly, it's uh, it's what what we do when we take volume, for example. Volume right. increase the concentration of this neurotransmitter and so promote this calm response.
2: Well, do we so use Valium in dogs ever?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. We can use Valium in dogs. Uh, actually, it's one of the drugs that is well, the the the, the class of this drug, which uh, they're called benzodiazepines. Mm-hmm uh is, is a class of drugs that, that we can use and actually we we use frequently in cases of separation anxiety. Though uh, you you should talk like with a specialist about this because uh, benzodiazepine has contraindicated in other in, in some cases in which separation anxiety is for example associated with an aggression problem. Right. Like if the dog is a fearful right. of people or unfamiliar people and at the same time it's aggression anxiety, we are careful when, when we give uh, benzodiazepine because they might disinhibit aggression. So this is why you need the help of an expert to make the, 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 the right combination that is targeted for that specific individual. There's no sort of a, there's no gross release right. Right, that we can just give to And because of
2: your experience and living through this with various people and their dogs, you have like a history in your brain and remembering you tried a little of this and a little of that and how long you have to try it. I, I think that that would be the value to somebody, to a veterinarian and the owner coming to you because, you know, really you take a big history and then you look at the dog's weight and you listen for these other symptoms. And then you would try A and B together, or B and C together, and then you know how long to wait to know what effect you got, and maybe do you need to give less of it, more of it, or is this not going to do it for that dog? There's, it seems like there's a lot of choices you can make, but if you don't make them carefully and cautiously, you might as well not do it at all. I mean, you're not just trying to knock the dog out. You're trying to change the dog's experience, right?
1: Yes, yes, it's uh, uh, definitely we want to give a, the dog a quality of life when, when especially when he's with the owner. Like we don't want to give something that we keep right, the dog in date right. or all day long. And uh, for for doing this, we we use the. Literature available, so things that we studied, but at the same time, the experience that comes from having in many cases. There are things that you will not find in a book, that's but based right. on your experience, you 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 say, in this type of case, for this type of dog, I've been more successful with this drug combination. So this that's, is like exactly, a yeah, that's exactly,
2: yeah, that's exactly what I meant. That so much of this is your personal experience and experimentation because this is a dog in a desperate situation and my suggestion to her was that at some point she can't do She she's a single woman without a lot of money she has to take the dog to doggy daycare or have a pet sitter every single day or night period oops we just lost dr carlo well in any case our time was up but many thanks to him as always for his good advice and wisdom and i guess a real little teachable moment for all of us that if your dog's behavior gets worse and worse or starts out really bad probably a professional veterinary behaviorist is the way to go we're going to take a break for a quick word from a sponsor and i'll be back with john bradshaw and his amazing new book cat sense we'll be right back support for dog talk comes from precious cat litter owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian whose litters are designed to appeal to kitties and protect their health. Cat attract litter has a blend of herbs which entice cats into the litter box and overcome out-of-litter box problems. Respiratory relief litter is low dust for pussy cats with asthma, which makes it healthy for people and other pets in the family too. Support for this show also comes from Nordic Naturals, whose Omega Pet products provide your dog or cat with the same premium quality omega-3 nutrition as their fish oils for people. Because research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in their oils. Nordic Naturals uses sustainably sourced wild fish from healthy stocks. With third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness surpassing the strict international standards for omega-3 fish oil quality. I am back with an f- old friend, one might say, of dog talk and kitties too. If you remember the marvelous book *Dog Sense*. Which was also a New York Times bestseller by John Bradshaw, who is the head of the Anthrozoology Institute at the University of Bristol and lives in Southampton, England. He has come back with a book I think is even more important for all of us and definitely for the three to one ratio of cats to dogs in our world Cat Sense. Dr. John Bradshaw, it's wonderful to have you back.
0: It's great to be back.
2: You must be so happy to have this book between covers, your beloved cat Splodge, which is just the greatest cat name I've ever heard. He's so much a part of your compassion and your desire to understand what makes a cat tick, but also to try in such a loving and, I don't know, unselfish way to think more about how do we give our cats a better life? And Do you think Splodge led you down that path? Because this book you've written, Cat Sense, how the new feline science can make you a better friend to your pet. It's really, I think, I feel as if Splodge was inspiring you. You've spent decades of your life studying dogs and cats and what makes them tick. But I have to believe Splodge was the heart and soul of this book.
0: Well, Splodge was a was a very special cat. Um, he was actually my daughter's cat to begin with. But as she grew, he, he, he grew into becoming my cat. Uh, and he used to greet me every time I got home. He would jump out of the house. He would jump into the car. He'd run around the car purring. Yes. Um, and then he'd come back into the house with me and then ignore everybody else. So he was a that unusual thing, I think, a one-man cat. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, uh, many cats have inspired me to write this book, not just Splodge. But, and, and I think that's almost essential because every cat is, has a personality. Every cat right. is different. And what I've tried to, to do here is to, to try and distill the essence of cats, if you like. What is What do all cats have in common and then what makes them different?
2: And, and are you... Have you been throughout your life as an anthrozoologist, but also a dog and cat lover and owner? Have you been a little frustrated as I have been with the fact that people seem to lead a more passive life with their cats? They really don't step outside of their own shoes to put themselves in their cat's paws and recognize and educate themselves about what is natural for a cat and what satisfies a cat's deepest needs. Do you feel that so many people don't even know that's an issue?
0: I suspect that's the case. Uh, I think, you know, dogs can get misrepresented, but everyone has a pretty good idea, even if it's not a very accurate idea. Right. I think they have a good idea about what right, makes right. dogs tick and how they think. Whereas I suspect quite a lot of cat owners are simply happy that the cat gets along alongside them rather than with them. And I think yes. there's so much more you can do to forge a relationship with a cat without upsetting the cat because unlike a dog, cats are reasonably happy to be left alone for quite long periods of time so in many ways for modern lifestyles they're they're a really good pet
2: they like to be left alone but they don't necessarily want to be left alone with other cats and that's something that you have a whole chapter about in cat sense about cats and other cats and you have a really i think you know it's called cats together and i think a lot of people that seem to keep adding cats on, like it's a, a poppet chain necklace or something. Oh, I've already got one. I could always have two. Or what's the matter with three? Oh, I have room for four. And not only do they begin to have all kinds of unhappy cats and out of litter box problems, but they I don't think people are as aware as your book will help them understand that cats are solitary. And if you're lucky to find one other cat your cat actually enjoys... That's pretty unusual, but to ask a whole lot of cats to live indoors with a whole lot of other cats is almost asking too much of them. Don't you think
0: I think the more cats you have, the harder it gets. There's always going to be you know if you, once you get to three or four, it's pretty much inevitable that two of those cats won't get on. And that somehow they have to resolve the issue um, between them they 're not very good at just kind of sitting down and having a little <laughs> chat with each other and say, "Okay look we don 't get on, but let 's uh, let 's agree um, one of the One of the things they may do is to carve out the house up between them, which means that if they 're all in a small apartment, then that 's not going to be easy um, and as you quite rightly say, litter box problems are often a, a an obvious sign that things are going wrong um, because cats that don't like one another don't like to share litter boxes. Exactly. And if people are in that situation, then, you know, the first thing to do is you, you're going to have to have at least two litter boxes and they're going to have to be in different rooms and they're going to have to be in rooms where you're not feeding the cats either because that's not so good. You, they, they don't like to be um, have the litter box close to the food. So uh, you're going to quickly run out of space even though you think you, ha- you have enough room for the cats.
2: And what's really what's really marvelous about the book is – without it becoming heavy duty, you know, lecturing from the pulpit, there's so much science behind what you explain. You really describe the body language of cats who are liking each other and who are disliking each other. And it gives people, I think, a map, a map to understanding better what's going on and to appreciating the subtlety and complexity of cats' emotions and not just turning your back on them, but providing, Both a more stimulating environment, but also a less stressful one. One that one in this chart signs that cats in a household do or don't get along with one another. One of the one of the the very first thing you have on that chart, which I actually didn't know. There's many things in the book I didn't know, which is part of what I love about it. Cats that see themselves as part of the same social group generally, A, hold their tails upright when they see one another. Talk a little about that, because when you describe Splodge running out to your car the way many of us have a dog who will run to our car, and then he would get into the car, and he would pretty much kiss you on the cheek, and then he'd escort you back inside. And he wasn't hungry, and as you say in the book, you weren't even the one to feed him. But he greeted you with that upright tail, and that told you a lot about his affection towards you. How did you discover this upright tail behavior marker?
0: Well, the upright tail is just so uh, ubiquitous. I mean, all cats pretty much do it. Uh, But nobody's really, I think, given it its due, if you like. Um, I agree. The research that I've done with colleagues, first at Southampton University and then at Bristol, have really placed this tail up signal at the center of the language that cats use when they're talking to one another, when you get a group of cats that uh, that live together, um, they use the tail-up signal really to say, you know, I'm no threat um, when they're approaching one another. And sometimes the cat that's being approached won't raise its tail, in which case the interaction won't go anywhere. If it does, so if there are two tails raised, then a couple of two different things can happen really one is that the two cats will just rub up against one another maybe they're exchanging odors at that point we don't really know very much about that or they may just sit down together and maybe even start grooming so they're showing that they're friendly with one another if only one cat raises its tail then the whole thing is likely to either just fizzle out as the cat walks away or maybe even uh, the other cat might chase so um We worked out that that really this is a signal which um, is is ubiquitous to all cats. I don't think there are many cats who don't do it and certainly very few who don't understand it. And that this um, show, it it really is what cat sociality hinges on. If they didn't do this, they'd have to do something else, really. And and we don't know what that would be. It's Um, sort of
2: like putting their paw out to shake in, in the sense that in humans, the shaking of hands was to extend your hand to show you didn't have your weapon, I guess. Right. Originally? So yeah. I sort of think of that tail up as the same thing. It's like extending a friendly hand. And if it's not met with another friendly hand, that's pretty much a, a slap on the face or at the very least a sign that, you know, maybe later, not now.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's it's almost a rebuff. Um, it doesn't mean that the two cats will become sworn enemies immediately, but uh, it, it does mean, you know, don't do it now.
2: Well, what I, <laughs> what I love about love the book is that people living with more than one cat by reading the book and a lot of charts, make they they make short work of the of the deeper explanations, which are really interesting. You can look at a chart and go, okay, one, three, and seven. Yep, we've got that, and that means so such and such. If we have one and two on the other chart, now it tells us something different. I think it's I think we need roadmaps to our cats. I think that's part of what's uh, most disturbing about how how much people don't know, and then sad that they well until really until you wrote this book there was no place they could go i mean my book gives a couple of kind of like little tasty tidbits but the work you've done you've accumulated into this book and it's much of it is, is work and an observation that no one has done before ever i mean there's the, a the huge section on how they mark and how they rub against you and other and other cats now feel away is a product that i've often recommended to people with cats with various issues whether it's a feel away diffuser or a spray and So my listeners have sort of gotten to understand the concept of pheromones and how that is a signal in in a part of the cat's brain. But the work you've done is so much more subtle than just, oh, it's the, you know, let's say chemical, synthetic chemical from the cheek gland, and that's their way of marking things. It's much more subtle than that. Talk a little bit about what marking means and what you guess it means, because as you say, you don't know for sure, do they want you to smell like them? or just not smell like you, you know, because they will do this on people a lot, as well as on objects and other cats and even on dogs.
0: Well, indeed. I mean, there's a whole lot about this cat scent language that has never really been studied properly. That's and right. I, I wish it had. Um, I mean, it's undoubtedly true that Feliway and uh, similar products actually work. They, they are similar to things that are in the cat's facial glands. But one of the mysteries to me is, why a cat would uh, relax um, in the presence of what must seem like a kind of picture of a giant cat, if you like.
2: <laughs> That's right. In, it in is Oda. funny. It It's um, like, oh, every, I mean, there's some understanding, uh, and in Europe and in England, away is used much more commonly from what I understand. It's more part of, you know, the, the repertoire of what you offer your cat. But it is hard for us to imagine because does a cat in the wild, and you often also make examples of cats in the wild, big cats, they don't go around rubbing on every little thing, right? I mean, rubbing on everything isn't just a, a, something a cat has to do for a third of the day,
0: normally. No, they, they don't scent mark as much, perhaps, as dogs do, but um, this this cheek rubbing, particularly, that they do, um, they'll do it as they're patrolling around their territories if you like i mean they're, they're not very possessive of their territories sometimes cats but they will go around and cheek mark and then other cats will come around and you'll see them go up to say a, a twig that's sticking out at about yes. his heart, where another cat yes. is marked and they'll do this strange lip curling thing um which uh is we, we don't actually have a very good english word for it but uh, biologists refer to it by its german uh, name which is flemen. yes um but the the cat's top lip curls up and it looks fierce um it, it looks a lot fiercer if, it's, if there's a lion or a tiger doing it having said that right but it still looks fierce on a domestic cat um because the the, the sharp canine teeth are exposed
2: but that, and- but isn't that fleming reaction john sorry to interrupt isn't that the same reaction you'll see when um an equine a horse or a donkey sniffs another equine's urine
0: it is indeed, yes. It's a very common reaction in lots, and, lots of different animals. Um, we think that even dogs do it, but they don't have this very obvious facial expression. Right, they
2: don't have that muscle, them. let's say.
0: Yeah, so most, uh, most mammals have this um, secondary nose, which is lies between the roof of the mouth and the nostrils. Um, we and other primates don't have it, so we've got kind of no uh, sort of conscious idea, about, um, intuitive idea about what we would do with it if we had it. But um, most mammals do. And um, the, the cats indeed use it um, very frequently, uh, sniffing other cats, but also occasionally people as well. I've noticed cats um, you know, going up to somebody's leg and just curling the top lip back as if to go, I, I need a bit more information about this. <laughs> What happens is that the smell goes uh, probably into the mouth, dissolves dissolves in saliva, and then gets pushed up or pumped up into this uh, little extra nose just above the roof of the mouth um, and somehow gets stored there for a while and analysed. And something that uh, I didn't, well, it hasn't been discovered until quite recently when, uh, so now we have the dog and the cat genomes sequenced. We've been able to, or geneticists have been able to find out that the cats they can identify which um, genes are coding for receptors in those in the nose and in this uh, the second nose as well. Really. And um, while the dog's nose, the conventional nose, the one we think of as a nose, is more sensitive than the cats and has perhaps slightly more resolution in it, with the second nose, the so-called it's called the vomeronasal organ or Jacobson's organ. Um, but with the second this second nose, it's actually the cats that's more sensitive than the dogs. Um, perhaps twice as many uh, different types of receptor in there. So they are picking up a whole lot of information that we have absolutely no idea about. And to me, that's one of the great mysteries of, you know, unsolved mysteries of cat biology is what are they picking up here? What are they analyzing? Right. What, what are they thinking yes. uh, as a result of all the things that they, they pick up on through there?
2: It does, it, and, and, and your book lets us enter their minds, but also I think it stimulates and encourages us to use our own imagination, because in a lot of the book, you and your fellow scientists have used your own leaps of imagination and of intuitiveness and sort of tried to, to make that leap to imagine what is on the other side of this other universe. There's a, there's a lot of wonderful quotes on the, on the back of your book of people who think very highly of it. And it's quite funny because I was reading it and I was like, oh, Alexandra Horowitz, yes, inside of a dog and on looking. She's been on the show and Jeffrey Musayev massan who wrote the amazing book When Elephants Weep and the Nine Emotional Lives of Cats, who's been on the show. And then I read this quite a bit longer, I should not be surprised, quote that says, Cat Sense makes sense of cats for us from an entirely fresh perspective, using a combination of history, science, logic, and a heartfelt compassion, certainly inspired by by his own lovely kitty, Splodge. John Bradshaw has given us all the gift of being able to truly comprehend our pussy cats and offer them the unselfish and satisfying life we have never quite known how to do until this book opened our eyes. And lo and behold, that was me who said that. And it was quite a lot of months ago when I read The Bound Galley and I'd forgotten that I'd said that. So I really mean it. I mean, you know, I, I, I think this book is an amazing gift really more to the cats than to the people and people who have cats and imagine themselves to be cat lovers, you really need to get cat sense. And, and it's almost like a, a, a slap upside the head, as we say in America, or a wake-up call, that there is so much more to know and so much more to appreciate about our cats. So, John, I, I just want to say, as I do on the back of the book, what, what a great gift you have given to everyone who loves cats and to those cats themselves. It's, a, it's really a tremendous piece of work, and I'm sure Splodge, looking down from Kitty Heaven, would be clapping his little paws together.
0: Well, that, that's who I wrote the book for. I wrote it for I cats. know. You,
2: don't, <laughs> you, you dedicate it to him, and he deserves it. Thank you so, so much for a, a wonderful book and a, and a wonderful chat. Much appreciated. Enjoy it's, the rest of your day.
0: It's been a great pleasure.
2: Take care. Well, it was it was wonderful to share this book with you and these other wonderful interviews. So I hope you all have a great rest of the day with your dogs and your kitties. Hug and kiss them all. Keep them close and get to know them a little bit better. We'll talk again next week. Bye for now.